Let's go ahead and begin uh, in a word of prayer today. Lord, we acknowledge to you that uh, the depth of your grace uh, for us as human beings is past finding out. In fact, we will spend all of an eternity getting to know how deep that grace is, and we'll spend an eternity learning about you. And we pray and ask that you'd help us to just learn a little bit more about that grace today, and not only learn about it in an academic sense, but I pray that we would uh, be moved by it, that we would uh, get to know and appreciate and love you more because of it. We thank you for your faithfulness to us, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Last week we began a three-part sermon series on the topic of God's grace. And specifically, we began by looking at God's grace as manifested in the doctrine of forgiveness. We, we, We said, of all the ways that we could explore God's grace, let's go ahead and do it by seeing what God's grace does. And one of the things that it does is it uh, forgives, it pardons, and we spent a good deal of time talking about that. During that message, we explored the depth of our own depravity and our sinfulness, and we recognized that in order to understand and appreciate forgiveness, we need to appreciate the holiness of God and the depravity of man. And we established in the little time that we had a theology of divine forgiveness. This is the doctrine that God uh, wipes out our sins. He forgives us. He pardons us according to his mercy and his grace. But what we did not say last time is that when it comes to our salvation, uh, specifically I'm thinking of the doctrine of justification where we are um, seen as righteous in God's sight, And by that, we can spend an eternity with him in heaven. When it comes to that doctrine of of salvation, forgiveness is only half of the equation. And what we need to establish here, right from the start, is that forgiveness alone, if you stopped there, forgiveness alone is insufficient. Forgiven people, if that is all that we receive is forgiveness, cannot go to heaven. Why is this? Imagine with me that you have a debt so that your net worth is a negative value. But somebody comes along and in their kindness, they, uh, they pay off that debt. So your new net worth is now zero dollars. You've been forgiven of the debt and now you have a net worth of zero. Of course, you would be incredibly grateful for what this person did for you. Uh, But you still don't have a positive net worth. How are you going to buy groceries, for example? Okay, You, you, You need more than the balance being brought up to zero. In the same way, we need more than our debt to be erased. We need a positive number in that totals column. We need to have what we would call positive righteousness. Uh, the early church father, uh, Chrysostom, said of Romans eight thirty three through 44, he said, uh, Paul does not say it is God who forgave our sin, but what is much greater, it is God who justifies. 
And he distinguishes, not disparaging forgiveness, but distinguishes, at least in this passage, that there is forgiveness, but here we have justification, something greater, something that is done also by God's grace. In 1 Peter 1 and verse 16, we read this, You shall be holy, for I am holy. Do you realize and recognize the weight of such a command? I mean, God, the creator of the universe, the one who flung the stars into position, says, my expectation of you is complete and total holiness. God demands not only a zero-dollar debt, he demands having positive righteousness. Of course, we see this clearly in Psalm 24, verses 3 through 4, where we read this, Who shall ascend to the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Not only must our hands be clean, but we must have a pure heart. Our hearts must be positively righteous. Now, we all intuitively know this, I think, okay? If you are being interviewed for a job and you get to the part of the interview where the, the interviewer says, now let's, let's talk about your strengths. Let's talk about the good contributions that you make to the company. You don't respond to that by saying, well, I don't punch my coworkers, okay? <laughs> you, 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 don't, you don't say, let me tell you all the things that I don't do. That's, you're telling your strength. What is it that I, have po- I can positively contribute to this company? Um, of course, it's good that you don't punch people. <laughs> but they're looking for the positives. In the same way, God requires that, yes, we don't do the bad things, but also God requires that we do the positive things or the righteous things, that we have a blameless life. You can't get to heaven on pardon alone if it stopped there. You need something more. What does it mean that Jesus died for me? Few Christians, I'm guessing, at least American Christians, know what the statement, Jesus died for me, even means. They just know that somehow it works out in the end. (laughs) Somehow, I guess, maybe, somehow it'll work out. We rejoice in Romans 3.24 that says this, uh, and are justified by his grace as a gift. Justification by grace as a gift. The philosopher Aristotle distinguished between four different types of causes. Uh, You could ask a simple question. You could say, what caused the basketball to bounce. And Aristotle, as all philosophers do, say there's more to that question than meets the eye, okay? And how did the, well, you could say that the person who was bouncing the ball caused it to bounce, but Aristotle might say that you can also say that it was the physical qualities of the basketball, the material that it was made out, the way that it was inflated with air, and so on and so forth. All of these things, physically speaking, caused it to bounce. In the same way, theologians have also uh, distinguished between different types of causes in our salvation. If you were to ask the question, 
what caused your salvation? What would you say? Well, if we were to distinguish between these different types of causes, we could say that, uh, again, borrowing Aristotle's language, the material cause was Jesus Christ. Jesus died on the cross to secure our salvation. Jesus, uh, through his atonement and his imputation of divine righteousness to a guilty sinner, has caused us to be born again. Jesus is the cause of our salvation. On the other hand, we also talk about a cause of salvation uh, that would be called the instrumental cause of our salvation. This is faith. We know that we believe in justification by faith alone. And so from that perspective, we might say, what caused your salvation? And we would say it is faith. I had faith and that resulted in salvation. But what I want to focus on today is what uh, has been referred to as the efficient cause of salvation. And that is, we will say, nothing other than the free love, mercy, and grace of God the Father. What caused you to be saved? The grace of God. The grace of God is the cause of salvation. In fact, I would suggest to us that the grace of God is the wellspring from which our salvation comes from. This can be clearly seen in 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3, where we simply read this, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again. God's mercy, God's grace is the cause of our salvation. And so we will be using the following outline today. Uh, number one, we're going to look at our need for grace. Uh, number two is going to be a misunderstanding about grace. Sorry, there's nothing up there, but I prepared this for the park and then I never went back and put it all up here. So uh, I know you'll pardon me for that. Uh, number one, our need for grace. Number two, a misunderstanding about grace. And then number three, God's grace and justification. So just to clarify, that's the outline for today, but just to clarify where we're going as a whole today is last week it was we want to see God's grace as it plays out in our forgiveness. This week we're seeing God's grace as it plays out in our justification. And next week we're going to see how God's grace plays out, Lord willing, in our sanctification. Okay? Now last week we saw that there were certain prerequisites that you had to nail down before you can be prepared to understand the depth of God's forgiveness, okay? And of course, every college student knows that there are certain prerequisite courses, and that is uh, designed that way because there's kind of some things that you need to understand before you can understand these things, and it kind of helps us to uh, work our way up in our knowledge. And we said that there were two things that we needed to understand before we could understand forgiveness. And the first one was this. Because of our sin, we're guilty. And because of our guilt, we feel shame. You remember this part of the sermon last week, that we, have, we are objectively guilty. And then the second thing we needed to know was this. God is more committed to maintaining his justice than pardoning guilty sinners. God is so committed to maintaining his justice 
that we said it is more likely that gravity itself would be undone than God would violate his justice. And so the, the, the conclusion of that message was that God pardons guilty sinners not by bypassing his justice, but by fulfilling it, specifically through Christ on the cross. And just like diamonds sparkle more when we see them against a black cloth, so too our understanding of divine forgiveness comes alive when we recognize how much we really don't deserve it. In the same way, before we are prepared to understand the depth of God's grace in our salvation, we need to see how much we are unable to be righteous in our own strength. You cannot be righteous on your own. You cannot be that. One of the key verses on this, a verse that I come to frequently, uh, in fact, this is a a good verse to have in your um, evangelism toolkit as you are preaching the gospel to others. Isaiah 64, 6 uh, is a a key passage on this topic. And in in that passage, we read this, um, we have all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous Deeds are like a polluted garment. Did you hear that? All of our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The Bible tells us very clearly in this verse that our righteous deeds are bad. (laughs) You would think that he would have said, your wicked deeds are bad and your righteous deeds are good. But he says, your righteous deeds are bad. He said, Everything that you have ever done that you thought was righteous is tainted by your own sinfulness. And again, I think we intuitively understand this. Um, I think if we were to survey the whole room here and we were to go around and interview each one of you, you could all probably give to us an example of where you did something kind with a wrong motive, okay? Every spouse has done something kind for your spouse and then with the hopes of using it as a pry bar later. Every sibling has done that. Every person in this room has been kind with the hopes of being able to say, but I did this for you, Now, multiply that out again and again and again, and we recognize that even the good things we do are tainted by our own sinfulness. That's what Isaiah 64, 6 says. Uh, I talk to um, a lot of people. I bring this verse up a lot in evangelism because I talk to a lot of people who have this understanding of um, salvation. And, And the understanding is this. They kind of picture salvation as two scales. You've heard someone talk about this before, or perhaps maybe before your own salvation, you viewed it this way, right? And if there's more weight on this side of the scale, you know, it tips this way. And if there's more weight on this side, it tips this way. I would say most people, probably most people I've talked to, unbelievers, when we talk about the topic of salvation, say that if my good works 
outweigh my bad works, then God will let me in. But if my bad works outweigh my good works, then I'll get cast out into hell. The, the, the problem, there's a number of problems with that. One of the problems is that if this is the good side of the scale, it's empty. There's, there's, there's nothing on it. Um, and so from that perspective, I guess they're kind of right, except they, they think that there's something on here. Yeah, you, whichever way it goes is where you're going to go. Well, it always goes this way. It always goes to my bad works outweigh my good works because I have no good works, according to Isaiah 64, 6. Proverbs 20 in verse 6 reminds us of this with a rhetorical question. And the rhetorical question is simply this. A faithful man who can find. Has anyone been able to find a faithful man? Likewise, Job says in Job 25 and verse 4, again, another uh, rhetorical question, how then can man be in the right before God? And can you imagine a world where a man uh, uh, could be in right with God? It's a rhetorical question because you can't even imagine this scenario being possible. And of course, therefore, we desperately need God's grace. Genesis 8.21 says, The intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. In Romans 3.10, we read this, There is none righteous, no, not one. No one does good, not even one. That sounds pretty comprehensive to me. No one seems to include the, the, the whole human race there. No one does good. Now, whereas last week we saw that our sin required forgiveness, this week we see that our sin does what? It prevents us from being righteous. We don't have that positive righteousness. Now, we desperately need grace. And here's the funny thing about grace. Only a bad person needs it and only a righteous person deserves it. So here's the paradox about divine grace. Our lack of righteousness simultaneously requires and is undeserving of grace. We simultaneously require grace and don't deserve it. Do you see the trouble that we are in? This means that if there will be hope, it will be entirely outside of ourselves. We need grace, but we also need to clear up one misunderstanding about grace. And this is where we look at our second topic here, or second uh, section. I want to clear up one... Just one? Yeah, just one for today. I want to clear up one misunderstanding about grace. And that is this. Some individuals have a view of grace that says that grace has a limited reach down. It, It reaches down, it reaches down, it reaches down, and then it stops. It's limited And in order for salvation to occur, it requires an equal and opposite reach up. 
so that the conjunction of the two put together results in my salvation. That grace comes down, but it only comes down so far, and then I have to come up the rest of the way. God, you know, the, the, the classic expression of this is if somebody hands you a gift, you have to reach out to accept that gift. That, that's, that's what we're saying here. Limited reach down, equal and opposite reach up. So that in order for salvation to occur, both have to happen, and salvation ultimately hinges on me. This conception of grace believes that God's grace functions as a catalyst to our salvation, that perhaps God's grace initiates our salvation, but it does not view God's grace as completing salvation or bringing salvation to its conclusion, that it is insufficient to take us all of the way to salvation. Everything in God's plan of salvation, according to this view, requires my contribution or else salvation is ineffectual. God has, in other words, done everything to make salvation possible, but now he sits up in heaven with crossed fingers and he says, please, oh please, oh please, please, John, just respond to me so that you can be with me. One of the reasons that this view of God's grace is false is because it puts hope in the creature rather than the creator. It robs God of glory and it transfers, it reroutes that glory that goes to God alone and it reroutes it to me. Because if I can say on the final day, look, there was something about me. I was wiser than you to choose this. I was uh, better than you to choose this then I can reserve something of boasting for myself. But this detracts power from the gospel. And we know this because Ephesians 2, verses 8 through 9, says that even faith is a gift from God. Why? So that no one may boast. Realize that God is cutting off human boasting. It is in our nature to boast in ourselves and we will grab at anything to even reserve something small to say, but, but salvation, I, me, I, I'm the one who did this, no matter how small it is. You see, but in our salvation, God is not throwing a life preserver to a live person who's kind of flailing around in the water. That's not what salvation is. God is, in our salvation, resuscitating a dead man who was lying dead at the bottom of the lake. That is what salvation is. Ephesians 2 says we were dead in our trespasses and sins. God did not give a little bit of grace or a partial amount of grace, and now he is anxiously waiting and worrying and hoping that somehow you will do your part. That would be a combined or a joint effort. No, 
And this, by the way, is what shows us the depth of God's grace. And that is that God does the whole thing. God provides salvation in full. God does not give a partial or a potential salvation. He gives a full and actual salvation that he brings to completion through the work of Christ. And what makes God's grace so remarkable is our total inability to do any of it on our own. You cannot extend your arm to embrace the gift unless God is giving life to your arm in that very moment. God's grace is deeper than we ever have imagined. And it is to this topic that we now turn. God's grace in justification. Let me summarize the first two points that we've seen so far. Number one, we saw, I desperately need grace, but I do not deserve grace. Fair? We all desperately need God's grace, but if I gave a survey and said, raise your hand if you think you deserve it, no one should raise their hand because no one deserves it. That's number one. Number two is this. My total inability requires God to provide a full and actual salvation, not a partial or a potential one. Now, what I am about to tell you about God's grace and salvation has no meaning unless you understand number one and number two. And unless you understand both of these things, you will not have a, any understanding of the depth of the grace of God. And to borrow the same terminology that I used last week when it came to forgiveness, until you grasp number one and number two, you will perceive of God's grace like a cup of water. But when you understand one and number two, God's grace is like Niagara Falls. It's, it's that much? <laughs> it is that full? It is that deep? That, it, that the quantity is that much? What makes God's grace so marvelous then is number one, you don't deserve it. And number two, it works apart from human contribution. That, that is what makes it so deep and so vast. Here's how God's grace works in salvation. You need to be righteous, you need to be holy, and you are not. Forgiveness is only half of the equation. You need more. You need positive righteousness. Now, most people believe that if you are going to be righteous, if I said you need to be righteous, most people would think that you would need to manufacture that righteousness yourself. You are either actually righteous or you are actually not righteous. But in God's economy, it is possible to be credited as being righteous when you are not actually righteous. We call this the doctrine of Christ's imputed righteousness. Let me give you a couple of examples. In Hebrews 11:7, we read this. By faith, Noah became 
and heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. Now, if you think about, about that verse for any length of time, it will sound very weird to you. He inherited righteousness. It, it sounds odd because it's like you don't put righteousness in a box. It's like righteousness is put in a box and then here, this is yours now. You, you possess this. After all, if we tried to um, try this in a courtroom scene, it would not get us very far, okay? You're, this guy is guilty of some sort of a crime, and he's sentenced to jail, and someone from the back row yells up, wait a second, wait, hold on, I have a box of righteousness here. <laughs> here you go. He's innocent now. He, he's, he's right. See, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. But in God's economy... This is exactly what happens. And this is one of the reasons why uh, God's grace is oftentimes mysterious to us at first. I want to read you Philippians 3.9, where we read, um, Paul says that he uh, is not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, a righteousness from God that depends on faith. So you could have a righteousness, none of us have this, but theoretically speaking, here's a righteousness that comes from the law, one that you manufactured yourself. And oh, by the way, here's another kind of righteousness, one that is generated by faith and given as a gift. Paul says, I want to be found having this gift of righteousness because I can't produce this gift, this kind of righteousness. And here's what we uh, learn in these two verse, in these verses, a principle, one, a principle, by the way, that you ought to commit to memory, not the way that I've said it, necessarily, but a principle to commit to memory, and that is this. In God's economy, you do not need to produce righteousness in order to possess righteousness. What this means, then, is that in his grace, God declares the guilty sinner to be something that he is not. You are a sinful person, and God says, I declare that you are righteous. He does not do this arbitrarily, just like he does not forgive arbitrarily. He does not give righteousness arbitrarily. It is given based on the work of Christ. Christ imputes his righteousness to the believer. And then here's what happens. When God looks at you and is pleased, what is he pleased about? What is God pleased about when he looks at you? He's pleased by seeing the righteousness of Christ. The Puritan Richard Sibbs understood this and expressed it many times in his writings. And I want to give you a few examples of what Richard Sibbs has said. Sibbs writes, he accepts, that is God, accepts what it, uh, of what is his own and pardons what is ours. God, God accepts in you the part that is his, Christ's imputed righteousness, and he pardons the part that's you, because that's all we have produced is stuff that needs to be pardoned. Sibs also writes this, he performs our part as well as his own. He also writes, we may be assured he will pity and pardon us, and then he will accept of that which is good, because it is the work of his own spirit. He accepts the good part in us. Yeah, you, you do have a good part inside of you. It's Christ's. 
that he gave to you. That's what's good. Sibs also writes this. He therefore, in effect, loves himself in us. God loves himself in us. God gives to us righteousness and then loves that very righteousness that he gave to us. And though this should cause us to rejoice, (laughs) you did that, God. It causes many people to scoff. Why would somebody scoff at the free grace of God? Why would, why would somebody, I think I mentioned this last week, um, you know, when salvation is free, why would, who would turn it down? <laughs> and last week the answer was people turn it down because they have to admit they're sinful. Okay. Now what's, from a little bit of a different angle, why would people turn down salvation? Free grace. God says, I'm willing to, free, why would people say no to that? Because our human predicament is such that we want to merit grace. We want there to be something lovely about us without Christ. we, we We want to be able to say that, yeah, Christ has given to us some righteousness and some goodness... But I don't do too bad of a job myself, if I do say so, adding a little bit to this. (laughs) We want there to be something lovely about us. But if that were true, then it wouldn't be grace. Right? How could it be... If If God says... Man, I have never met someone like you before. (laughs) Come on in. He wouldn't be giving us grace. He'd be giving us justice. Right? If if God gives us grace, then that means we needed it. Which means there's not a whole lot lovely about us and ourselves. Bad people need grace. Good people don't. Grace is not that impressive if you have something inside you that is inherently lovely. Do you see, you see why we can't get the full scope of God's grace if we distort it in such a way as to think God's grace has a partial and limited reach down and I have a partial and limited equal but opposite reach up. Grace in that paradigm goes this far and no more. What we are saying is that grace goes all the way down. God rescues us from the bottom of the ocean. He, he, does, he, doesn't say, he doesn't say, man, that one's already fell to the bottom. I can't do anything about that person. But that person's flailing their arms, and I'll throw them a life preserver. That's not how it works. Because the whole human race is dead at the bottom of the ocean. The whole human race is, is uh, Ezekiel's valley of, of the dry bones. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's where we are. You see, if there was something lovely in us, then we would expect to be recipients of God's grace. Well, of course, if I was God, I would have chosen me too. (laughs) There's nothing in us that deserves the grace of God. And so it is only when you understand that there is nothing lovely in us that we can see the true depth of God's grace. 
And here is what is incredible about God's grace. God's grace initiates and completes our salvation. God does not give a partial or a potential salvation. He gives a full and actual complete salvation. God's grace. So where do we then go from here? In our opening, I discussed four or referenced, did not talk about all of them, but I referenced four different types of causes. And when we ask the question, what caused our salvation? We can talk about it in instrumental terms. Uh, Faith caused our salvation. Faith, uh, justification by faith alone. We're very familiar with that phrase. But we have to go further back into the fountainhead and recognize that it is God himself through his free grace and mercy who has caused us to be saved. God caused our salvation. But there is another type of cause that I want to reference here. And this one has also been often discussed. And it is what is referred to as the final cause. Has anyone ever heard of this term before? The final cause of something? The final cause of something is synonymous with the word goal or purpose. What caused my salvation? We might say, what was the purpose? What was God's goal? What was God desiring? When God decided that he would save people, why did he do that? To go back to our basketball illustration, we might ask what caused the basketball to bounce? And we might say it is the physical qualities of the basketball that caused it. Or another sense is, you know, um, that... uh, um, the, the person bouncing the ball was the one who caused it. But if we were talking about it in terms of the final cause, what caused the basketball to bounce, we would say that it is, the assuming they're playing a basketball game, it is the desire to win the game that caused it to bounce. If you didn't want to win the basketball game, then you wouldn't pick it up and start playing with a basketball, okay? That is the goal. That is the end. That is the purpose for which you do this, and that caused the ball to bounce in that situation. In the same way, our salvation has a final cause. Our salvation has a purpose, a goal, and an end. And the final cause of salvation is given to us in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 7. And that verse says this, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Let me read that verse again. What is the final cause of our salvation? What is the end? What is the purpose? What is the goal? Why did God choose to save guilty sinners? So that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did God save us? Why did he reach down? It was to put his grace on display. In other words, it was to create worship. Why did God save you? I I remember a number of years ago, I saw somebody share a quotation that said something to the effect of this. God saved you. 
because he couldn't bear the thought of being in heaven without you. Sounds so gripping. It sounds like I'm really great. <laughs> you see how kind of the the, uh, the culture of the therapeutic has kind of crept into the church in some ways. <laughs> you think how we we kind of think in those terms because of the impact of our culture around us. There was God, I am so special. And I am so lovely and there's so much good in me that God saw that good and he said, I'm going to do something to rescue John because I could not bear the thought of being without him. Have you looked at your heart lately? (laughs) Okay. Have you seen what's in there? Now, there are a few reasons why this is wrong. Uh, But here's one reason. It starts with the creature instead of the creator. Our theology will be skewed Anytime we start with the creature instead of the creator. Now, theology does address the creature, but it does it in terms of creator to creature. In the beginning, God. Okay? God is the beginning. According to Ephesians 2.7, the final cause of salvation is not because God could not bear the thought of heaven without you. I mean, I don't... Is there a verse somewhere that says this? (laughs) Ephesians 2, 7 does not say, so that he could spend an eternity in heaven with you because he could not bear the thought of being without you. It says, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. God wanted men and women to marvel at his grace, to marvel at his mercy, and to marvel at his character. In short, God wanted worship. What is the final cause of salvation? The glory of God. Life is about God. Is it about his prerogatives? It is about who he is? And anything that he does toward us is something that comes out of his own character for his own glory. And when we recognize what we deserve, we cannot help but worship. And it is in that moment that we can really recognize the miracle of grace. But every time you add your own contribution, I did this and I did that and I'm lovely here and, I, and I'm desirable here and, and this and this and this. Every time you do that, you detract from God's grace. And here is the part where we ought to be in awe. Last week's message culminated with us crying out and saying, you did that? You forgave that? You pardoned that much? I didn't realize that it was that much. And this week we recognize that God did more than that. Not only did God forgive us of our sins, but he added righteousness, his own righteousness. He gave the righteousness that comes from God to a guilty, 
undeserving sinner who only deserves God's wrath in a place called hell for all of eternity. And he gave us that. He gifted us with unmerited favor through giving us his own righteousness. You did that? You gave me that much? Not only did you pardon that much, but now you positively added that much more to the whole thing. And I have to say what I said last week. I I, I hope... I, I'm, I'm a feeble person, um, and I walk down from here every week like, oh, man. <laughs> Hopefully God will use this somehow. I, I hope that this message today has moved the needle, even if it's just a little bit, of uh, the needle of how deep you view God's grace. Like, I viewed God's grace here, and now it moved it to there. Like, But as I said last week, put together all of the sermons that have ever been written, all of the the books, all of the music, all of the hymns, everything that has ever been said, written, expressed to teach us about the grace of God and God's grace is more than that combined. Next week, we will, Lord willing, conclude our sermon series on grace. We've seen God's grace and forgiveness, first of all. Today, we saw God's grace in our salvation or our justification. Next week, Lord willing, I want to see God's grace in our sanctification. But very briefly, perhaps I should have done this at the beginning. I want to express to you the difference between justification and sanctification so we're prepared as we go into next week's message. And that is this. The purpose of justification, what we talked about today, the purpose of justification is to declare you righteous. The purpose of sanctification, as we'll see next week, is to make you righteous. God's grace did that much, he forgave me? Oh, no, no, there's more. God's grace did that much more. He justified me. No, 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 there's more. God's grace did that much more. He's actually making me to be more holy and righteous. I mean, this just keeps getting deeper and deeper and deeper as we go. And it's going to take a lifetime to to explore. Sorry, more than a lifetime, an eternity to explore the depth. And and, and I I would uh, suggest to us that heaven is going to be like that. And it's going to be like, Wait, it was that much? Wait, 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 wait. Wait, it was that much? Wait, it was that? It was that? It was, wait, it was, it's, did you know? It was that deep. No, 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 no. It's deeper than that because of this. Oh, yeah. It, and it keeps going and going and going and going and going. Three points of application to conclude us today. Number one, recognize the impossibility. I know it's not on there, so I'll, if you want, I'll email this or text it to you or whatever. Recognize the impossibility of contributing to or deserving God's grace. We have to recognize that it is impossible to contribute to or deserve the grace of God. That's number one. Number two, worship God for providing a full and actual salvation instead of a partial or potential one. God has not given a part. God has not. I've done. 
of the 95%, can't you just do 5% of it? Can't, can't you just pick yourself up and do this much? No, worship God for doing the whole thing. And then finally, the third and final application, repent and believe on Jesus Christ in order to possess the righteousness that you cannot produce. If you are one who does not know Christ as Savior, you're hanging on your own righteousness. And we already said there's nothing there. Repent and believe on Christ, and you will inherit the righteousness that comes by faith and faith alone. Thank you, God, again for today, your goodness, your grace. Thank you that it is deeper than we could ever imagine. Help us now to implement this in our own hearts and lives, to worship you more, and to preach the gospel because of it. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.